philosophers have been called the watchdogs of reason. And while they use $3 words that most of us don't understand, they do mankind a great service. They hold intellectual assertions of men to the brutal standard of simple logic. If you look up the word logic in a dictionary, you'll read something like this. The study of the guiding principles of valid deductive reasoning as distinguished from invalid or irrational argumentation. It's a, a very simple uh, yet very exacting standard. To boil it down, it simply means what you say is true makes some semblance of sense, that it is uh, understandable, that it's free from logical, rational, linguistic, and definitional fallacies. It's just a simple standard that what you're asserting to be true is making sense, that it's balanced, coherent, understandable, reasonable, realistic, plausible. It must make sense. Or it's double speak. It's double talk. And philosophers hold our feet to the fire in that regard. While many Darwinists are highly educated, many seem to struggle with the rudimentary logic, rules of logic. I could have shared many quotes with you tonight from Darwinists with respect to origins, but I have picked one that will highlight the double speak that you hear quite often when a Darwinist is speaking about, about origins. Uh, I want to quote uh, George Wald. He's a Nobel Prize winning zoologist. Listen to what George has to say about spontaneous generation. And all, things, uh, and all other things, including complex life. Listen to what he says. One has to contemplate the magnitude of the task. The task is spontaneous generation. That one second there's nothing there, and then the very next second there's something there. There's no cause, just an effect. This is what he's talking about. So he says, one has to contemplate the magnitude of the task to concede that that uh, the spontaneous generation of a living organism is impossible. Now, he gets that right. But listen to what he says. Yet, here we are as a result, I believe, of spontaneous generation. One has only to wait. Time itself performs the miracles. Given so much time, the impossible becomes possible... Anybody see a fallacy there? The possible probable and the probable virtually certain. This statement is logically nonsensical. It is unintelligible to anyone who just simply applies the rules, the very simple rules of logic. I want to uh, say to you that with regard to the beginning, with regard to uh, the origin, the very beginning of, of the cosmos, all macro-Darwinist quotes are like this. They all assert spontaneous generation. They all assert this. It is logically and rationally and physically impossible, but this is their assertion. It's astonishing that Darwinists get away with saying these kinds of things, but they do. Regarding George Wald's statement, I, I have a quote here from R.C. Sproul. I've used this quote before, but it's interesting that Sproul is actually responding to Wald's comment. Listen to R.C. Sproul here. What we have left then is pure magic. 
In fact, it's magic with a vengeance. It's a rabbit out of a hat, without a rabbit, without a hat, without a magician. Logically, that's what spontaneous generation comes down to. You remember Colin Patterson. He's the uh, British Museum of Natural History senior paleontologist. Remember, he was the guy that said, I quoted him a couple of weeks ago, nine-tenths of everything macro-Darwinists say is nonsense. Okay, now this guy knows what he's talking about. He's the British Museum Natural History senior paleontologist. He went on in a, in, a, in a keynote address he gave in 1981 to the American Museum of Natural History. He went on to say this. This is a very candid admission. I want you to hear this scientist. He said, last year I had a sudden realization that for over 20 years I was working on evolution in one way or another. One morning I woke up and it struck me. I've been working on this stuff for 20 years and there was not one thing I know for certain about it. Senior paleontologist at the British Museum. Okay. This was quite a shock to me to learn that I could be so misled for so long. Subsequent to his epiphany, he, he set out to ask scientists and colleagues around him what they knew for sure. One thing, one thing you know for sure about Darwinism, macro-Darwinism, one thing. He says, inevitably, the silence follows. It occurred to me this week as I was studying that it truly staggers the mind that, one, I have to refute this. Uh, it's just illogical, irrational, it's un unsubstantiated, it's un an unproven proposition. But what really staggers my mind is it has become the unquestioned scientific orthodoxy of the day. And it takes a middle school philosopher, just an average student of logic can simply blow away their presupposition with respect to spontaneous, spontaneous generation. Listen to Ph.D. mathematician David Berlinski. I love this quote. Listen to this. Macro-Darwinian evolution, evolutionary theory is really no more than a 19th century collection of anecdotes, utterly unlike anything we see in the serious sciences. It's a mess. It's a room full of smoke. It has no substance. It's not clear enough to be coherent. It's not supported by credible evidence. In fact, it's preposterous. I, I love to give you these, these quotes of scientists saying these things. I don't want you to take my word for it. Because I, I think many of you think, well, Jim has an agenda. You know, they hear a preacher talk like this. And they say, well, Jim's got an agenda. He's just got a biblical agenda. Well, of course I have a biblical agenda. So this is why I'm quoting men from the scientific community. I'm going to give you one more quote and I'll move on. Molecular biologist, Ph.D. Jonathan Wells. I shared this with you before, but I want to share it with you again because I think most of us in this room will experience this in our lifetime. I believe this will happen in our lifetime. Listen to what he says. My conclusion is the case for Darwinian evolution is bankrupt. The evidence for Darwinianism is not only grossly inadequate, it is systematically distorted. I am confident that sometime in the near future, not too distant future, maybe 20 or 30 years, people will look back in amazement at how anyone could have ever believed it. Darwinism is merely materialistic philosophy masquerading as science, and people are beginning to recognize it for what it is. I'm going to say it again. I've told you 
This is, our, I think, our fifth sermon in this series. I've told you five times. I'm going to tell you probably two more times. We'll probably have two more uh, sermons in this series. We, uh, we are Bible-believing Christians. We should simply trust our Father's Word. To say evolution, to try to say that you can read evolution into Genesis chapter 1, it does violence to the text. There's no textual reason to say there are long ages of evolutionary progress in there. You have to import that in there. It's not in the text. You say, well, Jim, there are theistic evolutionists. I know they're wrong. You, you, you cannot get long ages of evolutionary process out of the text. You have to import it in there. And I would say to you, it does violence to the meaning of the text. So what I want to say to you again, we must not import macro-Darwinian evolutionary theory into Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to maintain our intellectual integrity. Uh, the opposite is true. We must uh, reject macro-Darwinian evolutionary theory to maintain our intellectual integrity. That is not a theological statement. That is a scholarly statement. That is a scientific statement. That is an intellectual statement. And I don't, uh, you know, I don't ever want you to forget that. That's, you know, the way you, one of the best ways to teach is repetition. I'm just going to keep saying that to you. This is not a, merely a theological proposition. It's an intellectual proposition. It's a scientific assertion, not merely a theological one. Some of you will say to me, you might protest and say, well, Jim, the Catholics and some liberal Protestants uh, have in fact accepted evolutionary theory and they inject it into Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. My reply to you would be that that uh, fact reveals that they are not only unbiblical in their theology, they are uncritical in their science. So let's uh, look at the text again. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, 14 to 19. You heard me read the text. I'll just read it again. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made uh, the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And He made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the, the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was an evening and there was a morning, a fourth day. I always marvel at the economy of words in the Scripture. God is not wordy. He is not long-winded, nor is He given to uh, piling on superlatives and adjectives and adverbs. But I want you to notice in verse 16, He made the stars also. God uh, is creating 99.9999999% of all the mass, matter, and volume in the cosmos, and the Bible simply says, God made the stars. I love that. <laughs> I love that. As we talked about in our second sermon, creation uh, is simply a jaw-dropping, mind-boggling display of the incomprehensible and infinite power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Awesome display. And I, I want to at least attempt to help you get some small sense of the scope of what 
uh, God is speaking into existence in verse 16 by the word of His power. And I'm just going to speak to you, and I want you to hear what I say, but I just want you to see some of the some of the images. Uh, I'm going to take you on a little trip through the cosmos, okay? So if we can get the uh, thing to work, we'll, uh, you'll get to see the images. There they are. You know, there, there it is right there, right? Uh, there we are. That's us. Okay. Let me, I want you to listen to what I say. Who knows what a light year is? Okay? It's, it's, it's how far that light will travel in, in one year. Okay, how fast is it? 186,000 miles a second or 300 kilometers per second. So how far is a light year? Someone do the math real quick. One of you scholars. Okay. We don't have any scholars. <laughs> no. It's really long. It's really far. Okay, it's 6 trillion miles or 10 trillion kilometers. So if we launch a hypothetical beam of light from the earth, at that speed, in about 40 minutes, we'll be passing Jupiter. Five hours, we'll be passing Pluto. Five days, we'll be leaving the solar system. Five years, we will reach uh, Proxima uh, Centauri, the closest star to our sun. Our hypothetical beam is now headed into the constellation Sagittarius and into the Milky Way. It will take 32,000 years to reach the center of the Milky Way, which is our galaxy. It will take another 50,000 years to reach the other side of the Milky Way. Now, the Milky Way, you need to know, is only an average-sized galaxy as far as, uh, as far as galaxies go. There are approximately 50 billion galaxies, give or take a billion, in the known universe. Okay? Our hypothetical beam must travel another 80,000 years to reach the closest galaxy to our Milky Way. It's known as the Magellanic Clouds. Our little beam must travel 2 million more years to reach the end of the Andromeda Galaxy, which is the closest spiral galaxy to our own. And it, in fact, is visible by the uh, naked eye. Then our beam will encounter really wide open space and it must travel another 20 billion years to reach the edge of the known universe. And God created the stars, is what the Bible says. (laughs) He's awesome. He means for you to know He's awesome. You're supposed to read this text and you're supposed to get on your face. He's awesome. God speaks it all. He speaks it all into existence. Our little beam has traveled 20 plus billion years. It has about 50 billion galaxies behind it, give or take a billion, with 10 trillion billion stars in those 50 billion galaxies. I was doing some reading this week and every star, you probably already know this, it's like a snowflake. Everyone is different. Every single one. Every single one is different. I know we cannot really process these kinds of numbers and these kinds of distances and this, these, this kind of time. But I want you to remember what Job told Bildab regarding the created order. Job 26.14, Job said, These are the fringes of the ways of God. So you can go 20 uh, billion light years out there, 20 billion times 6 trillion 
These are the fringes of His ways. As the prophet Habakkuk says, this is the hiding of His power. Are you worshiping your awesome Creator God? Yet, He means for you to worship Him. He's awesome. He speaks and billions of galaxies stand forth. David understood this. He understood he's supposed to read uh, awe and wonder and worship off the heavens. Uh, and he, he talks about this in Psalm 8. First, let me interject this quote by John Piper. Uh, this, infinite, uh, this seemingly infinite uh, cosmos is not a commentary on the insignificance of man. It's a commentary on the significance of God. Do you get that? Christian, if you're bored reading the creation account, something's wrong. You're supposed to be worshiping. That's what God means for men to do when they come to the creation account. Not to spar with Him intellectually, but to get on our face and worship this awesome God who speaks 50 billion galaxies into existence. David got that. I suspect he's, he's, uh, he's out in the, the field one clear summer night and he's watching his sheep and he takes a minute and he looks up into the stars and I think the seeds of Psalm 8 are planted with him. You heard me read part of that uh, in the opening of the service. David says, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Thy name in all the earth. If you're reading Genesis 1 right, this is where you will be. This is where you will end up. You'll be there with David with your jaw dropped, with your heart aflame, with your mind in awe. He's an awesome God. Listen to what David says. Who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained? What is man that thou dost take thought of him and the son of man that thou dost care for him? And yet you have crowned him with glory and majesty and make him to rule over the works of thy hands and has put all things under his feet. And David goes on to talk about uh, sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field and birds and fish. Mankind has dominion. Mankind was granted dominion upon the earth. Let me interject just parenthetically. Uh, one of the logical consequences of someone who really takes their macro-Darwinism uh, seriously is uh, the radical ideas of organizations like PETA. I'm sure you've heard of PETA, uh, People for Ethical Treatment of An Animals. Now, it sounds like a good thing, right? Sounds like it sounds like it'd be a good thing to do. Uh, PETA's founder, founder uh, Ingrid Newkirk, says this, there is no rational basis for saying that a human being is any, has any special rights over any other creature. Now, this is where macro-Darwinism will take you, logically, if you follow the, the presupposition. Listen to what she says. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. Darwinists are always pushing men down. And God talks about the dignity of man uh, in the creation. But Darwinists love to put man down. Uh, a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. Effectively, she's saying all creatures have equal standing. We are all uh, the result of spontaneous generation, mu uh, random mutation, and natural selection. So why, are, why would human beings be any more special than an amoeba or a dog or a badger or a cat? 
That's her, that's her worldview. She goes on to say that the atrocities of Nazi Germany pale by comparison to the killing of six billion chickens a year for food. This is where macro Darwinism takes you. Close parentheses. Psalm 8 is creation rightly understood. God is awesome. God is awesome. He's worthy of your unending praise and worship and adoration for a billion eternities. We're supposed to read that off Genesis 1. Also, we learn in Genesis 1, we'll be talking about in a week or two, man is radically different from every other creature. He was created what? Someone tell me. In the image of God. He is the apex of creation upon the earth. And God gave man dominion over the earth. Genesis 1.16 says, God made the stars also. As I said, 99.99 forever 9% of all mass, matter, and volume in the cosmos is handled as almost an afterthought. We've already touched on this, but I just want to uh, reiterate it. The Genesis uh, creation account is earth-centric. It's centered on the earth. God is not telling us what He's doing on Mars. God is not telling us what He's uh, doing in Alpha Centauri. God is not telling us what He's doing uh, out there with Andromeda. He's not telling us that. That's not important. What's important is the earth because He's going he's to design and breathe into existence a man who's made in His own image. The creation account is earth-centric, really anthropocentric. It's about what God is going to do in and through mankind, particularly with the Lord Jesus Christ. All that God is doing in verses 14 to 19 is in relation to the earth. It's, t- it's told to us from the perspective of the earth. Let me just interject real quick another parenthetical comment. You notice here in verse 14 that it says that these uh, stellar lights are for signs. I probably don't need to say this, but I guess I would be negligent if I didn't say this. It's not talking about astrology there. You always have to obviously read context. What's, what's the context? The context is that the signs are for seasons and for days and for years. Astrology is superstition at best and demonic at worst. So I hope there's no confusion about that with anyone sitting in this room. If you do have confusion about it, please, uh, I'd love to talk with you about it. So to reiterate, the creation account is told from the perspective of earth. God is creating a habitat for the creature He will uh, make in His own image. There was a movie back in the late 90s or mid-90s, I forget now. Uh, The movie was Contact. Does anybody remember? Anybody remember the movie Contact? And at the beginning of the movie, there's a little girl and a little boy, uh, pardon me, a little girl with her father, and and they're looking at the, the stars through a telescope, right? And the little girl says to her father, uh, Dad, do you think there, there's any life out there? Do you think there's extraterrestrial life out there? And you remember what he said? He said, well, if there's not, that's an awful waste of space. Wrong. It's not a waste of space. It's not a waste of space. God is telling of His glory. And He means for mankind to see it. 
And he means for mankind to believe in him, that he does have a creator. And he means for his people to be in awe and to worship wrong. It is not a waste of space. People sometimes ask me, uh, Jim, do you think there are aliens out there somewhere? And while the Bible is silent on this, I have to say, no, I don't believe that there are. It's all about the earth. It's all about mankind. It's what God is going to do through uh, this creature that He's made in His own image. It's about the glory of Jesus Christ. And I don't believe there are any aliens out there. Now, the Bible's silent about it. I'm just giving you my opinion. I'm just giving you my opinion. This infinite, seemingly infinite cosmos was put there for you and I to worship. For you and I to worship. To me, it's, a, it's an open letter from God to mankind. He's saying, I am here. I am unbelievably awesome. And you should be worshiping me. I think even more specifically, it's an intimate, personal message to God's people. I think God is saying, yes, my children, I am incomprehensibly, unbelievably awesome God. I think that's what He's saying to His children. And uh, these are but the fringes of my ways. You haven't seen anything yet, Christian. Wait till you stand before the living God. You haven't seen anything yet. Wait till you spend a billion eternities with this awesome God. You haven't seen anything yet. The inheritance He has for you is infinitely greater than 20 billion times 6 trillion. This is only a foreshadowing of how awesome He is and how huge your inheritance is. Friends, we're supposed to worship when we read Genesis 1. That's what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to question God or critique God. Of course, I've told you this in, in I guess every sermon so far, of course God is interjecting faith into the creation account. Of course He is. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. As I uh, discussed with you earlier uh, in the sermon series, light was created on day one, but the luminaries were created on day four. Now, this is a huge problem for many skeptics and critics. They love to make much of this. The Darwinists love, also the Darwinists love to insist that Earth must be billions of years old because we can actually see the light from uh, planets and stars that are billions of years away. So the inference is that, that the Earth has to be an extremely old Earth. Let me say to you again, beloved, God is not bound by the laws of nature. God is the author of the laws of nature. He does not have to obey them. They have to obey Him. Everybody clear on that? Light does whatever the Creator of light tells it to do. He is the author of the natural realm. I love Hebrews 11.3. And it is by faith. I love this. Have you ever thought about this? Hebrews 11.3 It is by faith that we understand these things. You ever notice? It's not by faith that we believe these things. It's by faith that we understand them. 
We understand the, 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 you know, the things that trip up the haughty, arrogant scientists. We understand by faith. How did Paul say it? A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them, for they are spiritually appraised. I was doing some reading this week, and to reconcile day, uh, the creation of light in day one and the creation of the luminaries in day four, I love what John MacArthur says. Listen to what he says. God took the light He created in day one, and He attached it to the luminaries He created in day four. I just love that. I think it's very simple. I don't know if that's exactly how God did it, but friends, He's not subject to the laws of nature. He creates them and commands them. And with regard to the light that we can see from stars that are billions of light years away, thereby suggesting an extremely old earth as opposed to a young earth, which I think is apparent from uh, the revelation of Scripture, without getting into Einstein's theory of general relativity, which says that uh, time is not a constant, and the fact that many scientists are actually discovering that that light is continuing to slow down. They actually believe it was much faster. At the beginning, at the very beginning, God not only created the stars that are billions of light years away, He could have easily, as we saw from day one of the Genesis Genesis account, simply create the light between that star and the earth. God is not constrained by natural law. God does as He pleases. God transcends the natural law. He commands water to turn into wine. Does anybody remember what happened? The water obeyed. Anybody remember that? He uh, commanded the muscles, the atrophied muscles in a crippled man to be healthy. Does anybody remember what the muscles did? They became healthy. They obeyed their Creator. And the man walked. He commands death ears to hear. What do the ears do when the Creator says hear? What do they do? They hear. He commands blind eyes to see. What do blind eyes do when the Creator tells them to see? They see. He calms the wind and the waves with just a quiet What do the wind and the waves do? They obey. And He commands dead corpses out of the tomb. And they come out of the tomb. It's interesting as we look at the the sun and the moon that the sun determines our days. I mean, these, these celestial bodies really determine the pulse of human life. Uh, in conjunction with the the tilt and rotation of the earth, our sun determines our days, the moon determines our months as it orbits the earth, and the earth's orbit around the sun determines our years, 365 days. Does anybody know where the week came from? I mean, the week is not inherently uh, evident in the celestial bodies, so where did the week come from? Anybody? Adam knows. What is it? Genesis chapter 1. This is a universal truth in all the world. There's a remembrance 
inside man all the way back to Adam. They remember this was the pattern. This was the pattern of work and rest that God laid down for His people. We've talked about this. Obviously, God could have done it all in a nanosecond, but He's setting a pattern. He's setting a pattern for work and rest for His people. Let me just quickly tell you that the sun and the moon are both uh, razor edge perfect in relation to the benefit they afford the earth. If there were small variables in the sun or moon, uh, life, could, life could not exist upon the earth. Uh, the sun and the moon respectively have the right mass, the right distance, the right composition, the right orbits, the right location, the uh, right properties. And the sun even has the right kind of light. If any of these variables were not true or if any of them changed by a very small percentage, life would end. Life would end on this planet. You know, scientists don't even know how the moon formed. They can't explain it. They can't explain how this moon could be here. They don't understand it. They have no explanation. The best the Darwinists can do with respect to the formation of the solar system and the sun and moon relationship to the earth is to assert to you that it's just a huge fortuitous accident. It just happened this way. We were just really, 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 really lucky. That's the Darwinist assertion. That is the Darwinist assertion. The macro-Darwinist hypothesis is that all things inanimate and animate Everything from an amoeba to a flower uh, to a conscious human being is the result of spontaneous generation. Now, I want to make sure, we, I already mentioned this to you, I want you to make sure you understand what spontaneous generation is. That means one minute, there's nothing on this table. There's absolutely nothing on this table. In the succeeding second, there it is, there's something there. That's what spontaneous you know, they use these big words. But what I'm saying to you, this is what spontaneous generation means. The macro Darwinist believes that uh, everything needed for the whole universe just happened. It popped into existence with no cause. It's an effect without a cause, which any of you who have been in logic, you understand this is a logical fallacy. This is a logical fallacy. So let's return to the philosophers, and I'm almost done. They are the watchdogs of reason. A good philosopher will press the demands of logic upon every assertion of truth. Logic functions as a policeman, and it saves us from all manner of absurdity. Let me just share this with you. I think you'll find it interesting. You probably already know this. Philosophers tell us there are only four possible explanations for the cosmos. There are only four. Here they are. First, it's an illusion. Uh, that's merely philosophical posturing. That is easily dismissed, so we can forget that one. Second, uh, the cosmos is self-existent or eternal. In fact, many scientists used to believe that, but they can't believe that anymore because of the Big Bang hypothesis, which says that there was a beginning. I know many Christians uh, uh, think there's some threat in the Big Bang hypothesis. Actually, it proves our case because scientists now almost universally believe there was a beginning. Einstein's theory of relativity actually supports this. 
So you can dismiss number two. It's not self-existent or eternal. Number three, it's just self-created. And this is what I've been talking about. This is the assertion of a macro-Darwinist that it is self-created, spontaneously generated. Yes, this is logically impossible, and need I say it, physically impossible, but this is what they assert out in the world. Listen, if you get a chance to debate a macro-Darwinist, do it because you can nail him at the outset. You've got him at the outset. If there's anyone in your audience who has one logical, brain, one logical thought in his head, he's going to side with you. You're going to win hands down. You're going to win hands down. The last one is the cosmos is created by something or someone who is self-existent. There are no other explanations. We've dismissed with three of four. What do we have left? Genesis chapter 1. That's what we have left. Genesis chapter 1. Using the exacting demands of logic and genuine science, we've dismissed all but one of these possibilities. If we uh, use the constraints of logic and we have intellectual integrity, we must accept that we were created. You will win every debate with that simple argumentation. You will win every one. Every single one. Every single one. And this infinitely powerful and all-wise genius creator, he has revealed himself. He has revealed himself in Genesis chapter 1. I've told you before, there's nothing like Genesis chapter 1 in all of human literature. There are some mythical accounts of creation, but... When you read them, you're ob you realize that you're obviously reading a cartoon. There's nothing like this in all the world. God, this awesome creator God, is revealing himself to his creatures, and he's done it in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And the Bible tells us unbelievably that this awesome creator is our redeemer. He is our redeemer. The God who spoke 20 billion times 6 trillion into existence. He's the one. He's the one on the cross. He's the one. He is the great creator, incarnate, crucified, buried, risen, ascended, returning God. So as I close tonight, I, wanna, I have two invitations. One for the unbeliever and one for the unregenerate nominal Christian. And then I have another one for the believer tonight. So the unbeliever, if you're here tonight and you have been rejecting Jesus Christ, I simply want to exhort you that if you, if you believe anything that Genesis 1 says, He's not the kind of God you would want to ignore. He is your Creator and you will stand in front of Him one day and you will give an account. This is another thing that we're supposed to learn from Genesis chapter 1. Now, if you're here tonight and, and you are just a nominal Christian and you've merely been playing religion with God, you don't really know Him, you don't really love Him, you don't really build your life around Him and the words that He's given to you, well, then I, I want to challenge you, religious friend, to really repent, really believe, and really give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. God hates dead religion. He always has just do a cursory read of the Bible. God hates dead, rote religion. He hates it. So if that's where you are, I exhort you to 
repent and come to Jesus in all earnestness. And lastly, for the Christian, (laughs) He spoke 20 billion times 6 trillion into existence. He did that. And what I want to say to you, as I told you last week, He'll have no problem keeping every single promise He's made to you. And Christian, you have license to live your faith uh, as big as 20 billion times 6 trillion. And, what, and I've shared this with you, but I fear that many of us are, are still afraid to actually live our faith in such a way that Jesus is clearly seen and magnified. This is what Jesus calls His followers to do. He says to pick up your cross and what? Does anybody remember? Follow Him. He means it. And you can do it. You don't have to be afraid. Your God is the God of 20 billion times 6 trillion. You can live it as big as you desire. And I'm going to close with Isaiah 41.10. You can trust the Lord. Listen to this great promise God makes to His people. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. That is El Shaddai, the awesome Creator God, challenging you to live your faith as huge as you dare. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this great account, this great text that You've given us. We read it and we realize who we are. We realize who You are. We thank You for this worship-provoking text, great God. We thank You that You are God of infinite power, that You cannot be frustrated by the designs and decisions and actions of men. Men are like grasshoppers before you. The nations are as nothing before you. Kings and presidents and popes mean nothing to you. You are the great, sovereign, creator, God. You do as you please in all the universe. And oh God, it's a great honor to be called by your name. And, O Lord, we rejoice that we are redeemed. We are redeemed by the Lord Jesus, by the shed blood and broken body of the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is soon to return. We praise You, awesome God. We praise You, Creator God. I pray that Your desired effect from this text will play itself out in our lives. Father, that we would live a Christianity that's 20 billion times 6 trillion, that we would live at large and that Jesus would be magnified. We pray in His name. Amen.